few weeks ago, we, we began a new studies of teaching in which we entitled them Honoring God. And we based that upon a foundation that was laid out of Mark chapter 8. I'd like to back up just a little bit and lay that foundation again so that our hearts and minds can be in the in the right frame to understand the message this morning in regard to avoiding hypocrisy. In Mark chapter 8, we have an interesting story of a man who was blind. And they brought him to Jesus, and when he prayed for them, when he prayed for this man, he asked the man what he saw. It says in verse 22 of Mark 8, he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men as trees walking. And after that, he put his hands again on his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clear. In other words, he saw men as men, not men as trees. And this rather unique area of the gospel, of the scriptures, because in most instances, you find where when Jesus prayed for people, they received an instantaneous miracle or healing, or he gave them some opportunity in which they were to act their faith. But rarely do you see a situation whereby Jesus prayed twice, which he, is what he did in this situation. And it raises a question as to why would he do that? Because he didn't do it when it came to Lazarus coming out of the tomb. The woman with the issue of blood, he didn't even pray. She touched the hem of his garment and stopped him. He said, who's touched me? I know that virtue has gone out of me. When he spoke in the synagogue to the man who had the withered hand, he didn't have to say it twice. He said, stretch forth thine hand. And his hand became whole. And it was done. The lame man in Acts 2 and in other places where Peter and John reached down and touched the lame man. And he went leaping and walking and praising God. He was made whole. So this is a very unique area of the scripture in which you see where he prays for a man and the man receives partial sight but not full sight. And when asked the question, what do you see? He said, I see men as trees. You wonder if maybe he was born to whereby he could see to whereby he knew what a tree looked like and he knew what a man looked like. Otherwise, maybe how would he have known? But in either case, Jesus didn't say to him, well, I'm not going to pray again. That wouldn't be faith. You just go on your way and in time you'll be able to see men as men. Now, I'm not teaching on divine healing right now, so I don't even want to get into it. But there's a lesson there. And this is what I want you to understand. Like in the case of the uh, centurion's daughter that was raised from the dead, Without turning there, Luke 8.55, after she was raised, Jesus went on to say, give her something to eat. Give her meat to eat. 
I mean, he had just raised her from the dead, but he recognized that she was still weak. She had just come out of death. She had been deathly sick, and that resulted in death. And when he raised her from the dead, he, he then recognized the necessity for her to get stronger. And what I, what I see in all of this, while well, well, if I was teaching on healing, it'd be a totally different area, is that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. And his purpose and his intent in, in ministering to people was so that they would receive a complete healing or a complete miracle or the complete work of God would be done in their life. And that is true in regard to our life as well, not just in the realm of maybe healing, but in the realm of our Christian experience, that Jesus wants to make sure that our deliverance from sin is complete. And that everything that He has foreordained for us, He wants us to walk in. Colossians chapter 4, for example, speaks about how that we are, we are to be complete in Him. Colossians chapter 4, let me read it real quick. He says in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, he salutes you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Now what was he praying for? You know, not one of those, I want you to pray, but I forget what you're supposed to pray for things. He was praying fervently, just a little personal family jam. He said, <laughs> I'm just laughing with you that answer. He was praying fervently, why? That, you would, that they would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And his prayers are to be like our prayers. That we should be praying earnestly about our own life and the life of others that we're fulfilling our goal. That we would attain unto completion. That we would t- attain unto maturity. That we would t- attain unto perfection. Colossians 2.10, just a few verses over, speaks about how that legally in Christ we are complete in Him. But that's our legal standing. It's one thing to have a standing. It's another thing to understand our state. When President Bush, for example, stands up in January or February, usually in January, I believe, and he gives the State of the Union Address, he basically describes in a big speech the health and condition of the country. Our state is is our current spiritual status with Christ in regard to the not our legal standing in Christ, which is we are complete in Him, but it's our growth and our walk to maturity and perfection. And just like Jesus was interested not in just praying a prayer and being satisfied with that man's eyes seeing men as trees, he wasn't content with that. He wanted to make sure that that this man received a complete deliverance. That he was going to see trees as trees and men as men. And he's not content with us if we just get born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, move out the gifts of the Spirit, speak in tongues. If we just... uh, get involved in church programs and functions, but in our personal life, our ethics and our morals and our mind is not being renewed and matured and perfected as it should be. 
not enough to just come to church once a week, hear a sermon, walk out, and then and then not live our Christianity. God wants us to take our Christianity to work. Zach mentioned today about prayer for co-workers because most of them were not Christian. You're a living epistle where you work, Zach. I'm a living epistle where I work. So are you. They may never get to church. They may never be able to crack open a Bible and read it. They may never hear a minister preach a sermon. But if we're living our Christianity, we are a living epistle unto them. We're a living book unto them. That's our calling. We're salt. We're light. And Jesus wants us to continue to strive to be like Him to whereby that witness of light and salt goes out into the world. You don't have to bring people to church to get them saved. Not that that's wrong. But by your testimony, by your witness, by the words that you speak, by your ethics, your morals, your standards, you're going to do a work of... uh, God is going to use your life as a work of conviction and open up doors whereby you'll be able to minister and evangelize. We all have a ministry. So in one sense, legally, we are complete in Christ. But from another side, we are to mature and grow up into Christ. And His concern for us is that we walk in the completeness that He wants us to walk in. What is that completeness? How is it described? Well, it's described in many ways in the Bible. Proverbs 19.18 speaks of how that there has to be a goal in our life. Where there is no vision, the Bible says, people perish. You have to have a goal. You have to have a vision. My wife and I just got back from a trip to Boston. It took several weeks and months of planning to have a a route, a goal, something that we would do so that we just didn't get off of a plane and scratch our heads and say, well, now what? You know? Everything was planned. Everything was in order. Everything was everything just perfectly lined up. And it went beautiful. I mean, we got a lot accomplished and a lot done. We learned a lot in a short space of time, but there had to be a plan. Every day there was a goal. There was something to accomplish. And we met that. And on the way home, I, I said to my wife, well, it was really enjoyable, wasn't it? She said, yeah. Because we, it's amazing how much we saw and did in just a matter of five or six days. In our life as a Christian, there has to be a goal. That goal in Ephesians 3.19, we're close by by the fact that we're in Colossians. So if you look at Ephesians, that goal for us as a Christian is spoken of in several places. But here, Paul refers to it as coming into the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19, again, he's talking about prayer, but this time he's praying for the church. And he says in verse 14 of Ephesians 3, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of of whom... the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, being rooted and grounded in love, we'd be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, and that we might be filled with the fullness of God. After we're born again, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. 
That is, if we ask Him to come in. And He baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. But the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to lead us and guide us, direct us, and bring us into the fullness of Christ. And that's our goal. Matthew 6.33 expresses that same goal. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of the kingdom of God. And when he says this, all things will be added unto you. There has to be a goal in your life. There has to be something you're striving for. No goal, no victory. I've got a few things on the board. Things that are goals, for example. It's like playing golf. If there's no hole to shoot for, then there's you know, you're just aimlessly hitting a ball around on a golf course. If there's no goal line, then in football what purpose is there? I mean, can you imagine if you watch football you'll see sometimes where young men will take the ball and they're trying to get over the goal line and they'll make a flying leap and they may be going out of bounds and yet you'll see their arms stretch out and they get that ball over there and they're trying to keep the ball in bounds. But they know right where that line is. They know right where that goal is. And they're striving to get attained to it. Yet they have a goal or, or they'd be like tennis without a net. Fishing without any bait. Going on a train ride with no station. Just what I mentioned about in regard to our trip to Boston. We got on a, we got on a commuter train and when we got out, if we didn't know where we were going to go, that's a big city. Lots of people. Kind of scary. <laughs> and so you got to know where you're going to go. Otherwise, you're looking around at 500,000 people and scratching your head. It's easy to get lost and taken advantage of. We have to have a goal. So seeking the kingdom of God is our goal. And when I say seeking, I'm talking about a real earnest effort and sincerity on our heart, on our part, to really want to attain a goal. Luke, 8, Luke 15, 8 is a parable that Jesus gives about the woman who lost a coin and how she just tore the whole house apart till she found that coin. And then she let everybody know that she found that coin and she just wouldn't let it rest. And that's where we're to be with the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. If we come to a place whereby we think we have arrived, we're getting lukewarm. God wants us to strive to be more and more and more like Him and not be content with our spiritual condition as it is. The Bible says... Godliness with contentment is great gain. When it comes to material things, that's an absolute. The godliness with contentment, that's great gain. But at the same time, contentment in regard to your spiritual condition is really, as one man said one time, a blight to your soul. It's something that is not, is not acceptable. We need to keep on striving. You know what it's like when you're seeking for something? You lose your keys, your wallet, your watch got a problem with your car, you know, like they said, they were driving down the road and you heard a thump. They stopped, they got out, they were seeking. When you're seeking about something, you're just not at rest till you figure it out. The other night, my wife, for example, she has a computer that she uses downstairs to do her schoolwork with, and then there's one upstairs, 
and I had to send the one out to get it repaired, and it's linked by the wireless system to the one upstairs so she can do her schoolwork and then print it out on the printer upstairs. So she wanted me to set it up, and I put the the flash drive in, and I was trying to set it up. I had it set up. I, 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 it's a laptop, and I printed off the laptop, and it went off on the other computer. Then I don't know what I did. I threw a setting somewhere, and it was hours, because if the wife's not happy, things aren't going real good, okay? If the computer don't work at home and the wife's not happy, things ain't too swift. And so I messed up two of her computers to the point that I had to take my printer, put it on her computer. Oh, I, I got things all messed up. I really don't know for sure what I did. But it got to the point whereby she sat in the chair and I gave her my my computer to work with, and she said, I think I'll just keep this one. I said, no, you're not. Because I can't do my sermons without it. It's that one back there. But anyways, I just kept thinking about it and searching and trying to figure out what is wrong here. What's the problem? And then, well, I've almost got everything worked out. But it's that same kind of earnest that you have to have in your life that you're not content spiritually where you're at. One day we're going home. One day we're going to find out that we could have had a whole lot greater rewards and blessings for eternity on the other side had we been more diligent and seeking in this life. I'm not talking about a fear as to whether or not you're going to make it. If we're in Christ, then to be absent from the body's present with the Lord. But we're all going to be rewarded and blessed for our faithful service down here. And we find that we've just been lazy, lukewarm, complacent, indifferent, putting a whole lot of effort toward the traditions of men. That's going to be nothing more than he wouldn't stumble. There has to be a, an earnest seeking on our part to fulfill the calling that Christ has given us. That calling, well, is to come into the fullness of God. I'd like you to turn over to John chapter 8 and verse 48. John chapter 8 and verse 49. This calling involves honoring God with our life. And I'd like to talk about this. I'd like you to think about this. We are to honor God with our ethics, our morals, our speech, our life, our time, we're to honor God. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus sought to live a life in which he was honoring to his Father. He said, for example, in a couple of places, I wrote them down. He's being criticized by the Jews, and he said, he answered them in verse 48, and he said, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a demon? And he replied back and said, I don't have a demon. I honor my Father, and it's you that dishonor me. His goal, his purpose in life was that he wanted to honor the Father in whatever he did. He mentions it again in verse 54. Jesus said, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honors me of whom you say that he is your God. The intent of his heart in everything that he did was he wanted to honor God. He was sincere. And that's what it takes on our part. 
We've got to, in our hearts, be sincere that whatever we do when it comes to the things of God, we want to do it to honor Him and we want to do that to please Him. It's a very interesting passage over in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14. We'll actually read a little bit before that. After the children of Israel had gone through the land and they had conquered and accomplished the promises that had been given to Abraham and they had the land. Joshua was about to leave. And he says unto the people when they came, we've read some of this before, but I'd like to back up a little bit. He made this statement. He said, I've given you, verse 13, a land for which you did not labor and cities which you built not and you're dwelling in them and of the vineyards and all of the olive yards which you planted, you're eating. Now therefore, fear the Lord and then listen to this. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and serve the Lord. But I, I thought about what he said. Serve the Lord in sincerity and truth. The only way we're ever going to attain unto that goal and finish our course is we have to be sincere. And we have to be faithful to the truth. We have to be both sincere and faithful to the truth. This is just Old Testament. First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8 in the New Testament says pretty much the same thing. That what's required of us is sincerity and truth. First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. Verse 70 says, Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Now that leaven that he's talking about, we'll get to in a little bit because he's talking about hypocrisy. Let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. If we want to attain under that fullness of God and all that Christ wants us to walk in, there has to be sincerity of truth, sincerity and truth in our life. What is sincerity and truth? Well, in, in, the, New, in the Old New Testament, it's summarized up in different ways. Deuteronomy 6.5, what does it say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. It is loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. It is putting away lukewarmness and complacency. If you look at Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, which was a literal church at that time, but if it points to the church age in which we're living in, there was a lot of insincerity on the part of the Laodiceans. They went to church, but yet they were content with their spiritual life the way it was. They were just going through the motions. He said to them, for example, in Revelation chapter 3, 
In verse 15, I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot, and I would that you were one or the other. Because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, then I'm going to spoo thee out of my mouth. Lukewarmness is a mark of insincerity. They were putting on the show to be followers of Christ, but in their heart they really were more interested in their own personal lives than they were in regard to the life of Christ. Sincerity and truth. Someone once wrote, Sincerity of heart is the starting point of spiritual practice and ethical living. A person's inner intention goes far towards determining the extent to which a particular action is good or evil. Now that's a very deep, profound thing to think about. We can be doing something that outwardly appears to be good, but if the motive is wrong, God knows that it's not good. We're only doing it because of some personal motive rather than love toward Him. Now we could be doing something that's wrong and be sincere, and it still is wrong, but God understands that we're in ignorance to it, or we're in weakness about it. He understands the sincerity of our heart, but what this man said is still true. Sincerity of heart is the starting point of spiritual practice and ethical living. It's the starting point. You've got to be sincere in your love toward God. See, before I was a Christian, I went to church and I did I did all kinds of things for the church. But when I asked the question, if I was honest, why do you go to church? I guess an honest answer would have been because my parents make me. And if there was someone else around that I was going to school with, maybe they were a Baptist, or maybe they were a Presbyterian, or maybe they were a Lutheran and I was a Methodist, I could get into a big argument and fight defending the Methodist church. I could be very zealous in my defense of it, but only because I wanted to argue. Only because I wanted to be uh, arrogant and pat myself on the back for what I was involved in. But there came a day when I had to do a real work of humbling in my heart and searching in my heart and be honest with myself that I wasn't serving Christ because I loved Him. I was doing it because this is something that I thought I was supposed to do. There was no personal personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Sincerity is being genuine. Being honest being unthemed. I mean, it's being able to search your heart and know that you are serving Christ and doing what He wants you to do because of love. The Bible says that faith works by love. Faith is believing that God has said something and that this is what He expects us to do and we believe it and we do it, but the motivation behind whatever we do has to be love and it has to be unthemed. It has to be honest. It has to be genuine. It can't be fake. We've seen sometimes, friends, where people have gone through the motions, and yet they've got a closet life. And that closet life is hypocrisy. If you love God, we don't have closet lives. We're sincere. That doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't maybe have weaknesses, but we're repenting of those weaknesses. We're seeking to change. 
if there's no repenting, if there's no seeking to change, if there's no admitting to something that's wrong and in your own personal devotions to God, asking for help and sincerely seeking to change, that's hypocrisy. People like to change the Word of God to whereby they can live what they've changed, the traditions of men, so they don't have to go to God and humbly seek forgiveness for what they're not living. But when you leave the bar to where it's at, the standard of what the Word of God is at, it's constantly reminding you of how you're not yet there. And I've heard ministers say we ought not to do that. Well, that's like saying we ought to take away the goal line. Let's take away the hole on the golf course. What are we shooting for? The standard's got to always be there. And if it reminds you that you're not there yet, that's good. That's called the fear of the Lord. That's humility of crying out and saying, Father, forgive me because I know I shouldn't have acted that way. I know I shouldn't have said what I said. I know I shouldn't have allowed those thoughts to linger longer than they should. If you're doing that from your heart and you're sincere and you're honest and genuine and real, and that's an unthemed love and faith that God has called us to do. Look at what the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and a few other places. The Bible speaks about having a sincere love toward God and His Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul here is speaking about how that people have been criticizing him, and yet he has gone through immense suffering. And he talks about some of this suffering. Verse 5, And stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, and by a love unfeigned. He went through all that, not because he had a martyr complex, but why did he suffer the, the great sufferings that he suffered? Because he had a love toward God. And he was not going to compromise and... and uh, give in to his religious counterparts, he was going to remain faithful and persevere and endure the suffering because he sincerely loved God and was going to be faithful to his word. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 rather, and verse 5. When I call remembrance, he's talking about his parents here, when I call remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded also in thee, is a genuine, real, sincere, honest, loving faith. First Peter 1 and verse 22, same thing. God has called us to love Him, honor Him, and serve Him in sincerity of heart. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 says, Seeing that you have purified your souls, and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto an unfeigned love of the brother. You're sincere, genuine, real. You don't show love and kindness and blessing to the brother in one minute, but then in the car on the way home, just start chopping away at him and stabbing him in the back and criticizing and laughing about him. you got a problem with a brother or sister, you pray for him. But you're sincere in your love and your devotion toward them. It is sincerity and truth. You can be sincere about something and yet be sincerely wrong. 
God wants us to be sincere. And he gives us a warning in the Bible about being sincere. Look over to Luke chapter 12. He talks about how that we are to beware of insincerity. We're to beware of hypocrisy. Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. I've often thought about that. He, he was talking to the disciples, the apostles. And he said to them, beware of this leaven of hypocrisy, of the insincerity that they show. Why should they be aware? Why should we be aware? Why should we be concerned? Because I think hypocrisy is a lot more subtle than what people realize. And I think people can get caught up into it a lot easier than what people realize. And it's like a slow dose of poison from man-made traditions and false religious practices that what it will do is take you away from accomplishing your goal. I mean, your goal is not to, our goal is not to just have our membership on a church roll somewhere. Our goal is not just to speak in tongues. Nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. But once we have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and we're speaking in tongues, that's just the start of our Christian life. That's not the goal. That's the 10 yard line, and I got 90 more to go. That's what I'm saying. And if we get complacent and content and we stop at the 50-yard line and say, I've arrived, we haven't scored the touchdown yet. We haven't gone over the goal yet. We haven't. The Bible talks about being a runner and striving for the mastery. And that's what he's called us to do. And we've got to be beware of the leaven of hypocrisy, and I'll explain to you in a little bit what that is, because these small doses of poison from man-made traditions and false religious practices will keep you from accomplishing your goal and keep us from honoring God. This is what Jesus said to those that were with him. He said, Beware, verse Luke 12, 1. I think I'll, we'll start at the beginning. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say to his disciples, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven. What is leaven? Years ago, we used to have this... Uh, up at home, and I forget what it was. what was that called that dough that what was it Herman, Herman. yeah <laughs> Joan's laughing she remembers Herman it was it was uh, what it was is uh, a little dab of dough and it had yeast in it and you would put it with more unleavened yeast and it would turn it into a yeast thing and you made all kinds of stuff with it. Bread, cinnamon rolls, all kinds of stuff. And people would pass Herman out all over the place and then that little dab they would put in and it would spread. And that's kind of what leaven is. Something small that grows and something that spreads. And Jesus says we got to be aware of it because it's something that starts out small 
But if we don't get it under control, it can become controlling and it can stop us and hinder us from fulfilling and accomplishing what he wants us to do. He says, for example, here about the leaven of the Pharisees. We'll come back to that in a moment. But in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2, he talks about beware of the dogs. Did you know there was a beware of dog sign in the Bible? John? Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2. I wasn't thinking of you when I wrote this down. But when Melissa was talking about it, I thought the least the UPS kids would do is make those people put up a beware of dog sign. Right? Are they doing that? I want. We'll keep it off the record. But at the very least, I mean, I would think as a UPS driver, I would think now if I was going to go back to that house and they put a sign up, I'd see that sign and it would say to me, "I got to be cautious of that critter, whatever it is. I don't know if it was a Doberman, a Dane, or a Dachshund. But anyways, Philippians chapter three and verse two, he says, "Beware of dogs." There is an actual beware of dog. What does that mean? Beware of dog. You go up to somebody's house and it says beware of dogs, that means you're going to be alert and on guard and careful. That's what he's telling us to be, when, what he was telling them to be, that when it came to the Pharisees, that they were alert and cautious and on guard. Because evidently, what they had to say and their influence was very tempting to be drawn into. Most of the people followed him. Most of the people appreciated him. Most of the people admired him. They had masses and crowds that went along with him. They called him rabbi in the streets. And they, you know, they just looked up to him as the highest standard of religious men and women, or men, we should say, in Judaism at that time. Then along came Jesus. He didn't, he didn't get cut from the royal family like some of them did. He didn't come out of the priesthood like some of them did. And he came along and he began to teach things that were contrary to what they said. And he had the signs and the wonders and the miracles to back it up. And the people were following the signs and the wonders and the miracles. Some of them wrongly. But at the same time, there was a great temptation, evidently, to get caught up into what the Pharisees had. Because everybody liked it. Everybody enjoyed it. It wasn't the truth. It was rather the traditions of men. It is sincerity and truth that go together. Not sincerity without truth. Not truth without sincerity. You could be outwardly doing something that is true, but if the motive for you doing it is wrong, it's wrong. Or you could be doing something that the Bible tells us that we should not do, or it's not according to God's plans and purposes. It's something that we've come up with, something we've dreamed up, something we like, something we know others will like. It's going to fill our churches. And we can be sincere in that we're just trying to fill the church but it's not truth and it's not right because it's not going to bring the growth that God wants it to bring. So therefore, it becomes nothing more than a tradition of men which Jesus rebuked. Honor and obedience go together. If we're going to honor God, we honor Him by obeying Him. What does the Bible say in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12? 
It says, honor thy father and thy mother, that it may be well with thee. Now, you know, everybody here that's, uh, that is children, you know what that means, and you teach your children that. If you want your children to honor you, honor isn't just by standing there like Wally Cleaver's buddy. What was his name? Huh? Eddie Haskell. He'd walk in the door and say, Hi, Mr. and Mrs. Cleaver. You know, Mr. Clean-cut, sweet guy. Boy, they don't come any better than Eddie. Mr. Cleaver looked right there and go, Hi, Eddie. Because he knew that behind his back he was a conniving troublemaker. Well, you know, if, if, all that you, if all that your children did was say, I love you, Mommy. I love you, Daddy. I love you, Mommy. I love you, Daddy. But they didn't want to do what you said. Is that honoring you by just mouthing words? No. Honor comes by doing, by respecting, by obeying. And so it's not just saying words. It's by being obedient, faithful, doing what he says. Look at Mark chapter 7 and verse 11. The leaven of the Pharisees was honoring God with their lips, but having their heart far from Him. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 11 it says, he's talking here about how the, the Bible says to, that they were to honor their father and their mother. Actually, we ought to back up a little bit. Verse 6 he says, Well hath Isaiah the prophet prophesied of you, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Albeit in vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They lay aside the commandments of God and hold the traditions of men to things like the washing of pots and cups and other such things that you do, because that's easy to do. Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own traditions. A tradition is just a man-made belief that is imposed upon people. And they do it on a so much of a regular basis that it, it's just assumed that it is a godly practice to do. There's a lot of tradition in Christianity today. And you move away from that tradition, you'll find a lot of people don't want to give it up. But it's yet tradition. It's, it's not, there's no no benefit in, in there for you as far as your Christian growth. If it deals with worship, it's worship in vain. In fact, he goes on and talks about it. He says, well, full well you reject the commandments of God that you may keep your tradition. And then he gives an example. Moses said, honor thy father and mother, and whosoever curses his father and mother, let him die the death. But you say, if a man says, of his father and mother, it is Corbin, that is it a, is it a gift. In other words, they say, you know, if you you could get away with not taking care of your parents when they get old by just giving the money to the synagogue now, and then you'll be free from that responsibility. God will take care of that. That's what Corbin basically meant. You suffer him no more to do aught for his mother, do anything for his father or mother. And you make the word of God of none effect through your tradition which you delivered and many such things like do you. And so that's what they were. They were, by their tradition, taking away from the word of God. 
And over in, I think it's Matthew 15, and the counterpart to this, he says, you, uh, you talk the talk, but you don't honor God by the way that you live. That is the hypocrisy that we're to be on guard about. The leaven of hypocrisy is acting the part of someone, pretending to be someone or something that you're not. Just saying I'm a Christian may be words. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 7, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? To bear the name but avoid the life-changing commands is nothing more than talk. And James says that a man or woman that hears the word but does not become a doer of the word, that man or that woman deceives themselves. Because all that's happened is the word has filled up our minds, but it hasn't changed our life. We are to serve God with a faith that is unseen. Sincerity and truth go together. And the reason why is because many of the false religions of the world believe so the world believe that a key to their religion is to be sincere. The Jehovah Witnesses are very sincere in what they do. But they're sincerely wrong. The Mormons are very sincere in their beliefs. But they're sincerely wrong. Because their Savior is not the Jesus of the Bible. It's something concocted by Joseph Smith. And the same thing is true for other religions. And that's why Jesus... That's why Paul said, beware of dogs. He's talking about false religions. Here are some quotes, for example, from other religions. Sincerity is the single virtue that binds divinity and man in one. That's Shintoism, Japanese. A man becomes pure through sincerity of the intellect. Therefore, in meditation, he beholds him who is without parts. Sincerity and Hinduism. God does not look at your forms, your possessions, but He looks at your hearts and your deeds. That's the Muslim. You should worship God as if you saw Him, for although you do not see Him, He sees you. In other words, be sincere. That's the Muslims. The Hindus believe in sincerity. The Muslims believe in sincerity. The Shintos believe in sincerity. Just because you're sincere, so what? The Pharisees were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. You want to challenge that? The Apostle Paul went about actually persecuting Christians to the place whereby he was ordering their death. But later on, after he saw the truth and repented, you know what he said? He said, God had mercy upon me because I did it in ignorance. But he sincerely thought he was doing God a favor by taking this cult called Christians and having them put to death. But it wasn't of the truth. See, I'm trying to make a point. We've got to be sincere in our serving of God, but we've got to be sure that what we're sincere in is the truth or we're not going to accomplish the goal. I'm not trying to be condemning. If we're in Christ, we're in Christ. But listen to me. There are rewards and blessings and so forth.
to fulfill that goal and that calling, and that calling is to be complete in Him and not be satisfied with just the 20-yard line on Christianity, the 50-yard line on Christianity, even the one-yard line. We're to strive to continue to keep going. We're to seek to honor God. To talk the talk and not live the life that goes with it is to be like the Pharisee. Outward, the Pharisee achieved a high level of righteousness, but at the same time, they were actors. That's what, that's what hypocrite means. The word in the Greek means to play the part. It's a mask. Have you ever seen the, the different masks that would put on a smile or a straight face or a grimace? And they would put on that mask. That is where the root for hypocrite comes from. It was playing a role. It was bringing forth a Hollywood production. And that's just what they were doing. And that's why I guess I'm really grieved sometimes when I see a lot of things that go on called Christianity that are nothing more than Hollywood productions. Well, they may, get, they may be able to rake in the money from people, and they may be able to put on a good show of entertainment, but the bottom line is, are they pointing people to the direction that they should be going to whereby they can achieve that goal that God wants them to achieve? I'd like you to lurk over to Matthew chapter 23. The Pharisees were a group of people, a group of men. They came in somewhere, well, in between Malachi and Matthew. In that area of time before Jesus came. And we don't really know a whole lot about their, their total background, but all of a sudden they just kind of come on the scene. And when they come on the scene, Jesus renounces them. He rebukes them. The word Pharisee means separate one. You remember when we taught on on the holiness of God? What does holiness mean? Remember? It means what? To be separate. What does sanctification mean? To be separate. In other words, these men, we could have called them the sanctified. They were set apart. Set apart unto a God, though, that they twisted and changed His Word on and not the ones that were presented by the Scriptures. They were fanatical in their zeal. I'd like you to read these Scriptures. Don't just listen. Read them. Think about what I'm saying. I could have ended this a long time ago. I'm trying to... This is a lot more important than what you think. Look at Matthew 23 and verse 15. The Pharisees were evangelistic. Jesus said unto them, Woe unto you, Matthew 23:15, Pharisees, hypocrites, you compass sea and land to make one proselyte when he's made his, you make him two-fold more of the child of hell than yourself. They compass sea and land. In other words, they had a worldwide evangelistic ministry, didn't they? Huh? Isn't that what he's saying? I mean, I realize not like today in the sense that, that obviously back then, but they compassed land and sea to try to make a convert. That took some sincerity on their part, I'm sure. Because they didn't have jet planes and mass transit. They did a lot of walking. There was a lot of effort involved. Financially, they were tithers right down to the T. 
Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of the mint, the anise, the cumin, the very herbs that were there. You know, they were to give a tenth of all of the all of their crops and all of their animals and they and everything. Well, you know, if somebody came along and gave them a basket of raspberries and it had 50 raspberries in it, they'd take the top five out and lay it aside. That went to the priest. And then the rest got to themselves. They were picky. The honest, the mint, the common. I mean, they were right down the line. Where every 10% of everything, that went, that went right to the temple. I mean, that's a commendable thing. But he said, you've omitted the weightier matters of the law. It isn't in your checkbook. It's in your attitude toward people. Not that one's wrong. He goes on to say that. He said, you've omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment and mercy and faith. He says, these ought you to have done and not let the other undone. There was nothing wrong with what they were doing in regard to their tithing. But that was enough. They said, we tithe. And yet they're only on the 30-yard line. There was a whole lot more out there to accomplish. They stopped. They came up with their own little system as to that was good enough. They were men of prayer. They were constantly in prayer. Walking around, praying with their hands folded, wanting people to say, oh, wow, look, there's a great man of God because he's constantly in prayer. But their motive behind it was what? To be seen of men. Mark chapter 12 and verse 40. He says here to them, he's rebuking them again. Verse 38, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and the greetings in the marketplace and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at the feasts. And they devour widows' houses and for a pretense will make long prayers. You know, Jesus said when you pray in Matthew 6, He said, Go into your closet. Pray to God so that nobody knows. Keep it in private. When you do your fasting, when you do your giving, when you do your prayers, do it in private. Do it, in, do it inside. Don't do it to be seen of men. Don't constantly be bragging and talking about all your intercession and all your prayer time and all the things that you're doing in prayer and on and on. If you're sincere in that, that's fine. But if you're only doing that to get somebody's applaud. And pat on the back. That's the leaven of hypocrisy. And all that's going to do is keep you from fulfilling your goal and responsibility. It is important to pray. James 5 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Look at John chapter 5 and verse, 30, verse 39. The, the Pharisees read their Bibles. The Pharisees had... Scriptures that they put on their faces called phylacteries whereby they were constantly looking at the Scripture, constantly thinking about the Scripture. You know, you can walk into a person's home and if they have Scriptures on the wall and stuff, there's nothing wrong with that. But if the motive for doing that is that you want to try to get people to see you're a godly person and so the only reason that you're really putting it up there is to oppress people, that's say wouldn't stumble. That's hypocrisy. It's not that it's wrong, 
But are you sincere in doing it because you love God? Sometimes people won't put them up because they don't want to be embarrassing. And that goes the other way around. John chapter 5 and verse 39. He's rebuking them again here because they're criticizing him. And then just one word, one verse real quick. He says, search the Scriptures. They read the Scriptures. They read the Word. They read their Bibles. But just reading your Bible is not going to get you mature and complete to where God wants you to be because you can do that just because you're going through the motion. The Pharisees were renounced. Why? Because they they said and they did not. Go back to Matthew chapter 23. This whole section of Scripture, he renounced them. When he tells us beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, we're not to ignore this. We're to think about what they did and we're to make sure that we're not in some way slowly slipping into some kind of a mode like that. Otherwise, why would he say beware? Beware means watch it. Be careful. I mean, if I'm driving down the road and I see a sign that says, beware of falling rocks, I'm going to start looking for some falling rocks. If I'm going out like my wife did out in the ocean to swim, and it was a sign up that said, beware of undercurrents, that means you're not just going to walk out there and run out there and, oh, and have fun because it might just sweep you right in. I got a picture out in the Atlantic Ocean walking out. She didn't go very far. And she said, you could just feel the current under your feet trying to suck you in. Signs aren't put up there for no reason. They're there for a reason. And Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The insincerity of doing something. The traditions following the man-made traditions and substituting them for the truth. He's warning us, don't do that. We cannot honor God if we seek to honor please men rather than Him. In Matthew 23, if we go back to it, we started, we, we read some of this, like verse 3, we read it again, but I didn't emphasize this. Let's look what he says. All therefore, whatsoever they tell you to do, do. But don't do after their works. For they say and do not. When they sit in Moses' seat, verse 2, when they read the Scriptures and they read the Word and they tell you to do it, you do it because that's God's Word. But don't follow their example because they say and do not. They change the eternal Word to adapt to a modern world around them so that they would receive the praise of men. Matthew 15.3 speaks about that. Just hold your finger in Matthew 23. And I'm almost done, so hang with me. This is where they ask him the question about why the, the disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. And it was a traditional ceremonial thing they had come up with. And he said unto them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? And then we went on and read this already, but he, but he renounced them and he said, verse 8, This people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. 
That's what we're to be on guard about. That's what we're to be careful about. If we keep reading in Matthew 23, if they were sincere in some of the things they were doing here, they were sincerely wrong because they had done nothing more than change the eternal Word of God unto their own system and follow it. What makes them any different than the Shintos, than the Muslims, than the Hindus? They all believe in sincerity. I've had people say to me, well, God knows my heart. Yes, God does know your heart. If your heart is sincere, that's okay. But it's one thing to do something sincerely wrong in ignorance. That's acceptable. But when you hear the word and you don't want to change, that's stubbornness. And that was rebuked on their part. That's saying, I've arrived. Don't come in and mess up my little nest. That's where it's wrong. And shame on the ministry for backing off. Because they don't want to teach something that's unpopular. Shame on them. We ought to be saying, no. That's the 20-yard line. You've got 20 more yards to go. There's your goal. You see the fork sticking out of the ground? Are you all with me this morning? Listen to me. Jesus did not say to the man after he healed him, and said, he said, I see men walking as trees. He didn't say, well, that's good enough, man. That's better than what you ever had before. At least now you won't go bumping into things. He said, that's not good enough. And he prayed for him again. And the man said, now I see men as men. And he said, that's what I want. I want complete deliverance for you. And that's what he wants for us. Matthew 23, 5 and following. We'll just read it and I'm going to start to close. They bind heavy burdens, verse 4, and grievous to be born. They put them on men's shoulders, but they don't do them themselves. All their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries. They enlarge the barters of their garments. They love the uppermost rooms at the feast and the chief seats at the synagogues. And the greetings in the market, they love to be called Rabbi, Rabbi. Be not called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ. And all the rest of your brother. Call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Well, I know we've got in Judaism, men are called rabbi. I know in Catholicism, men are called father. But Jesus said, don't do that. And if you would try to talk to him and say, you know, the Bible says that we ought not to take and set up a man on a pedestal, so to speak, whereby we call him our reverend father, it'd be one thing for a Catholic priest in his sincerity to serve God, if he saw that and said, you're right, I don't want to be called that anymore. That's acceptable. But when he says, comes up with some kind of a lame excuse to bypass the plain teaching of the Word of God, that's the leaven of hypocrisy. That if he truly is a Christian, will keep him from the rewards and blessings God wants him to receive. And it may just expose the hypocrisy to whereby he's nothing more different than these men that put on a show. But you know who put Jesus on the cross? These guys did. He said, 
in verse 14. Well, we already read there. Verse 16. Woe unto you blind guides which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he's a debtor. And on and on. I'm, I'm, I've made my point. I'm not going to keep going. You can read this on your own. But we are to avoid the hypocrisy, the leaven of hypocrisy. I want you to stop and close just by thinking about this, and I'm going to end. Why do you call yourself a Christian? Why do you call yourself a Christian? Stop and think about that in your own heart. Is it because we live in a Christian nation and it's an acceptable thing to profess to be a Christian? I mean, it has certain benefits. Michael Vick, for example, after he was convicted of killing dogs, suddenly became a Christian. Or said he was. I don't know if he was or wasn't, but isn't it something out of, you know, maybe if I call myself a Christian, I get a little bit of leniency from a judge. I'm not saying that's the case, but if that was the motive, that's hypocrisy. Why do you go to church? Because my mom makes me? Because my dad makes me? Because my boss is a Christian and I don't know, there's just certain benefits if you go to church. I like the entertainment. I like the, the, the not very entertaining this morning. I like, I like the activities that I'm involved in. I mean, one man said to me one time that, you know, he really liked this church because he loved the softball games. Well, that's fine. But you play softball for anybody. You know what I'm saying? What's your motive? Come on. Search your heart. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Think about it. Why do you read your Bible? Listen to teachings. Is it because it's a family thing to do? Habit? Tradition? Fear? I'm going to close with one section of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. We need to be sincere in our motives and in our heart for what we do. He says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Listen to the sincerity of Paul's heart. For yourselves, brother, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. Even after we had suffered before and were shamefully treated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not a deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. I mean, Paul said, I'm a custodian of God's word. I've been allowed to preach it. It wasn't his to tamper with. And he was going to leave it as it was. Not as pleasing men, but God, which knows my heart. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, or a cloak of covetous, Godness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse at churches or children. 
So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to be, have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but our own souls, because you were dear unto us. There is a sincere heart coming forth in regard to his ministry and motive for the preaching and proclaiming of the Word of God. Father in heaven, I know that you've set before us a goal and that is to strive to, to be like Christ in all things. And it requires a seeking on our part, the seeking of your kingdom. Not the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of God. The world doesn't seek it. So if we're following it, we're wasting our time. But open our hearts to see that as you said to those that were with you, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That we need to beware of the leaven of modern day Pharisees today. That cult might not be here, but that spirit's still here. That spirit that was working in them to do things to be seen of men, to take the eternal word of God and twist it and turn it to whereby they could live something and not have to repent, not have to be concerned about whether or not they had been faithful to it. But it was nothing more than man-made traditions. And you renounced it in your day and I'm seeking to renounce it in mine. And I ask you to open up our hearts that if there's any spiritual complacency that's here, you'll give it a tune-up and you'll remind us that we are to strive to be like you in all things. Our goal is the fullness of Christ. Father, bless the word to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.